You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Dead authors, fresh takes, and the epilogues you never knew you needed. Welcome to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast with the deep, dark secret that it doesn't use a bookmark and just dog ears the pages. I know, we're ashamed. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. I use e-readers. No, you don't. You don't even own an e-reader. Just lie to people. Just sit up here in front of this microphone and tell lies. I have two potential e-readers in my possession at this moment. That's your phone or your computer. I mean, are you just using e-reader as like a general term? Electronic reader. Uh, And there goes your phone. All right. My e-reader pal. Today we're going to be talking about The Invisible Man. No, not not that one. The other one. Which Which one? What the hell are we doing? (laughs) The, The one in which invisibility is not a cool superpower, but a tragic metaphor for racial and class identity. And there goes your phone again. This is not straight. Off to a roaring start. Is our house tilted? Yes. <laughs> it's The Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, which, you know, much to the surprise of many a, a student, was not the H.G. Wells version, where a dude turns himself invisible and just sort of fucks around. I don't know. I actually, to be fair, I have not read The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells. I've seen The Hollow Man. With Kevin Bacon. That's a very bad movie. This book is neither of those things. I don't know if it's really bad. He he does a pretty good job of being invisible. (laughs) Kevin Bacon is just so good at acting invisible. It's like I didn't even, I couldn't even see him. He was just gone. I agree. The Invisible Man is considered to be one of the great American novels. The ones that they, you know, where everything's capital letters. Uh, along with works such as, like, The Grapes of Wrath, or... Old Man in the Sea. Sure, why not? Courage Under Fire. Yeah. Moby Dick. Yeah, Moby Dick. Yeah, is Moby Dick a good American novel? Sure, why not? And like Grapes of Wrath, Moby Dick, um, I'm not a super big fan of this book. But the we'll, four we'll get to that. novelization. Yeah? What are we doing that? Never. If people want to know. Not ever. Wasn't there a Forrest Gump book before there was a movie? Why would it be yeah. a novelization? <laughs> a the book came first. Um, and what are we doing the uh, novelization of Face Off? Wow, that's an old joke. That's a deep cut. <laughs> is that a deep cut? <laughs> it no, is. Really that's from like that's from like our second or third episode. I think we made oh, that we made joke. A joke about that. <laughs> oh my god, we haven't even been doing this a year. God help us. At least one well, of we've us been remembers. at this for more than a year. I get scared that we're going to repeat, because I, I noticed we repeated some with uh, The Crucible. I repeated the whole thing about Giles Corey being pressed in, like, the more weight thing. And I had already made a joke about that when we did The Scarlet Letter. And I was like, oh, no, I'm repeating jokes. But you just don't remember any fucking thing. So I, we're doomed. I can take my face off. We're doomed. <laughs> That's John Travolta for yeah. Or maybe I'm the cage. I don't know who delivers that line. So I did a little of both there. Yeah, it's fine. It's good. You didn't sound like either of them. <laughs> yeah, I did. Bust out a Nick Cage right now. I could take my face off. Now give me the John Travolta version. Hey, I could take my face off. Wow. Oh my gosh. All right, this has been a great use of everybody's time. Let's get back to Ralph Ellison's Visible Man. Oh, Ellison. Yeah? This is a problem. Oh? You told me to prep for Ralph Waldo. Yeah, Ralph Waldo Ellison. Uh, I heard Emerson. Yeah, guess what? This who's on first shit doesn't work because, no, I actually said prep for the invisible man. Uh, I didn't listen to that part. (laughs) I said who? (laughs) So you want to talk about... It's going to be such a good episode. I mean, okay, Ralph Waldo Ellison was named for Ralph Waldo Emerson, so it's like not even like a funny ha-ha. I think we need to take a break and we'll reconvene. We'll get back to you.
And we're back. I found a thing out about Rolf. Well, Rolf. <laughs> <laughs> about Rolf, the dog from the Muppets. Is that what you wanted? No. <laughs> you gotta give me a minute then. And we're back again. Ralph Waldo Ellison. Oh, thank God. Born March 1st, 1913. Died April 16th, 1994. Coincidentally, he was named after Ralph Waldo Emerson. Yes, it's not a coincidence at all. It's yeah. not coincidentally. From that uh, slapstick uh, comedy duo, Emerson and Thoreau. We're going to have to tackle that one day. Those, those wacky transcendentalists. We keep bringing them up. Anyway, so Ralphie... Ellison, mm, not Emerson. Mm. Are you really going to call him fucking Ralphie like this is a Christmas story? Under protest, I will call the man Ralph. Anyway, Ralph was born in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Home to uh, um, the Oklahoma City Thunder? Sure. Oklahoma, where there's something, something Oklahoma. He was born to Louis Alfred Ellison and Ida Millsap. He was the second of three sons. The first kid, Alfred, named after dad, died in infancy. His younger brother, Herbert, was born three years later. So they had an Alfred, a Ralph, and a Herbert. Okay. Those sound like old names, man. I guess. So, Big Daddy E. Oh, boy. He was a small business owner and acted as a construction foreman. He died in 1916 when Ralph was three due to being penetrated by shards of ice that went flying all over the place after being run through a hopper. They tried to save him via an operation, but no dice. He died due to that ice. That's a really awful way to die. Hey, get iced to death. Yes. That's pretty bad. Yes. Yeah, so, uh... That's, that's, that's pretty awful. I'm glad you rhymed it. <laughs> yeah, so Daddy E was the uh, family breadwinner. And so him dying kind of put the family in a bad financial spot. That's been the theme to like our last, like, what, like eight episodes? All of them? Every of them? Which, quite early in this episode, brings us to this week's installment of... No! Financing with RJ. You realize this is going to have diminishing returns after a certain point, right? Megan. RJ. Life insurance. Is oh, it good? Oh, God. Oh, wow. Is it good? Sure. What is it? It's that thing that in Lifetime movies that they're always trying to murder their spouses for. And does it go well with applesauce? All very fair questions if you ask me. See, if Big Daddy E had some life insurance, things may not have been so bad for little Ralph and the rest of the Ellison gang. In short, Daddy E forgot to licketh. What? Well, I don't want you fine people at home to forget to licketh. What the fuck is licketh? You must licketh. I know whatever this acronym is going to be, it's going to upset me, so let's just get it out of the way. For if you don't licketh, the same thing might happen to you and your family. I really would like to talk about this book. Licketh stands for life insurance because crazy instances and things happen. <laughs> I don't know what is more, uh, what, what, what I ought to be addressing first here. How much work you put into making that happen, or just how fucking funny you find yourself. Now, this might be a good time to mention that this finance with RJ is brought to you by Tic Tacs. Got a bad taste in your mouth? Kick it with Tic Tacs. <laughs> ah, fresh. <laughs> this is going to be... The final installment of Financing with RJ, because by the end of this episode, I will have killed him. Anyway. Anyway. That's all the time we have today on Financing with RJ. Oh, thank God. Remember all my financiers at home. Love yourself. Love your family. But most importantly, love, love your money. Yeah, I thought it was love the feeling of money in your wallet. Oh. <laughs> you can't even remember your own fucking taglines love the money or excuse me love the money love the, <laughs> this is finance with rjc love the money so back to the 19 teens with ralph daddy e was dead which is sad in and of itself but what maybe makes his death even sadder is that ralph discovered later in life that big daddy e always loved literature 
and wanted his children to grow up and be writers and poets. Sadly, Aww. Big Daddy E never got to see it happen. That is really sad. Yeah. It's a little uh, undercut when you call him Big Daddy E, but that's very tragic. In 1921, when Ralph was eight, his mom uprooted the family and moved them to the happening place of Gary, Indiana. She moved the family to Gary because she felt it was a better spot for Ralph and his brother to grow up in and a good spot for them to learn to be men. Part of this was due to them moving in with her brother, Ralph's uncle. Unfortunately, Uncle Ellison lost his job, and Mama Ellison couldn't ever find one. So then the family bounced the hell out of Gary and upgraded by backtracking to OKC. Back in OKC, Ralph's family life never really settled down in his childhood, partially due to his mother remarrying three different times. Oof, that's rough. Eventually, he did graduate from high school, which ushered him into the life of working. Ralph became a busboy then a shoeshine boy, then a hotel waiter, and eventually that naturally progressed into him becoming a dental assistant. Now, Huh. That's, I mean, you're, you're building a resume, I suppose. So, what does one do after becoming a dental assistant, you ask? What does one do after becoming a dental assistant? You take trumpet and saxophone lessons from your best friend's dad, and you become the school bandmaster. Sure. After working for a few years, Ralph applied to the Tuskegee Institute which was founded by Booker T. Washington. Ralph was admitted in 1933 when he was 20 because Tuskegee needed a trumpet player. And Ralph, you want to play the trumpet? Huh. All right. No word <laughs> and no research was able to tell me what happened to the prior trumpet player. You suspect foul play? I don't think a chicken was involved at all, Mank. That was... That was really bad. I think there was mischievousness afoot very very coincidental anyway and anyway now that we've accused ralph ellison of murder ralph was excited to go to tuskegee because it was an all-black institution and he hoped that meant he would fit in thing is though as he was quick to learn tuskegee was very class conscious and he was kind of really poor so he still caught a lot of shit one literary critic, Hilton Alls, believes it was during this time of being an outsider as being the most instructive elements in creating Ralph's literary voice. Specifically, Al says about passages of Invisible Man, quote, Ellison looks back with scorn and despair on the sniveling ethos that ruled at Tuskegee. That's pretty intense. Ralph spent his time at Tuskegee studying music as well as literature. He credits T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland for providing him with a great awakening moment. He also enjoyed reading works by James Joyce and Gertrude Stein. So he was big up on them modernists. Ralph's biffle on campus was the librarian, which I wrote, library. <laughs> his best friend was the library. <laughs> uh, was the librarian Walter Bowie Williams. It's a good name. That is a good name. The two were known to fangirl out over books together. Aww. Yeah. All in all, Ralph spent three years at Tuskegee before bouncing out of there without completing his degree. It just wasn't his scene, you know? Still, wanting to study art, and it being the 1930s and all, 1936 to be exact, making Ralph 23, he did what any 20-something at the time would do. He moved to New York City. Being a bit broke, he took up lodging at the YMCA in Harlem. While there, he got to know Langston Hughes and Ono Liquas alum Zora Z Dog Neil Hurston. Although, was there another name we came up for her? Oh, you didn't start with the the weird nicknames until a bit later. You were just uh, cool for a long time, just calling them by their first name like they were your pals. Z Dog. Who could forget Z Dog? These two in particular helped mold Ralph's fragile and young political mind into one sympathetic to dirty communist causes. Dun, dun, dun! Dirty, dirty <laughs> pinko communist causes. <laughs> yeah, it seems like uh, communism has once again found its way back onto the show, which begs the question, is it everywhere? Who knows? Ralph also struck up a friendship with Richard Wright, who was openly associated with the Communist Party, who encouraged Ralph to write fiction, which led Ralph to write his first published story, Jaime's Bull which was about Ralph's days of hoboing on trains with his uncle through Alabama. Jaime's Bull. Shortly after this, Ralph began to publish short stories and book reviews on a regular basis in magazines like The New Challenge and The New Masses. Richard Wright then convinced Ralph to publish an edit for communist publications. During World War II, however, both Ralph and Wright became disillusioned by the Communist Party, feeling that the party betrayed their African-American members by replacing the Marxist 
class politics with a focus on social reformism instead. So wait, so they they changed their Marxist things to class. So like, what does that mean? You said a bunch of words there. I'm not 100% sure what that means. That they focus more on social reform stuff. So not so much about classism anymore. Ah, uh, okay. So that they moved away from like the power of the proletariat to... The white people, communists, became middle class. Ah. So they were less worried about the lower working class that tended to not be white. There we go. Okay. And so they were palling around with the bourgeois. You know, a lot of the alleged communists were Hollywood directors, Hollywood actors, all the rich people. And mm. so they didn't care so much about the lower classes, which happened to be not white. Yeah, I'd feel kind of betrayed and pissed off, too. You're kind of like, we made it, guys. Oh, you didn't? Well, eh. see you later. We got here. Thanks for the boost. Yeah, kind of like women's rights. Mm. 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 White feminism. Mm. Ralph wrote at the time, quote, If they want to play ball with the bourgeois, they needn't think they can get away with it. Maybe we can't smash the atom, but we can, with a few well-chosen, well-written words, smash all that crummy filth to hell. Shortly after this, Ralph began writing The Invisible Man. At the age of 25 in 1938, Ralph met a woman two years his senior, Araminta Poindexter. That's a name! There are some good names in this episode so far. She was a stage actress. They fell in love, and they were married within a year of knowing each other. According to a biographer, Araminta was perfect for Ralph because Ralph wanted a, quote, physically attractive and smart woman who would love, honor, and obey him but not challenge his intellect. Mm, uh, Turns out, though, she wasn't perfect for him, as he cheated on her a few oh, years oh, into the marriage. Great! Which led to their divorce soon after. Oh, God, that's just the grossest sentence. Like, yeah, I need someone who's, like, smart and can keep up with me, but not too smart, because I don't like to be challenged. Well, that's what the biographer said of Ralph. Not that Ralph said that. Fair enough, but... I mean, I like that he you found the, it. <laughs> I like that he says she was perfect for him, and then he cheats on her and broke up. This biographer knew this. <laughs> <laughs> she was perfect for him, except she wasn't. So during this time, World War II was waging on, and while Ralph was eligible to be drafted, he was lucky and his number never got called. Despite this, though, he did enlist for a short stint with the Merchant Marine Service. Afterwards, he met Fanny McConnell, who became his second wife. She was the founder of the Negro People's Theater in Chicago and was a writer for the Chicago Defender. Fanny quickly became the man of the house and supported Ralph financially, importantly while he wrote and worked on The Invisible Man. Aside from bringing in the money, she also helped him edit the typescript as he wrote. He was married to Fanny for the rest of his life. Eventually, The Invisible Man was published in 1952 when Ralph was 39. The novel was critically acclaimed and has helped Ralph win a number of awards. Ralph never finished another novel. At one point, there was a house fire, and Ralph lost a 300-page manuscript that was going to be the basis of a new novel. Oh, shit. He then began rewriting that novel, and by the time he died, he had 2,000 pages written towards a second novel. What the hell? But it was not finished, and so it's never been published. And 2,000 pages? 2,000 pages. At what point... Do you realize, like, at some point, like, I guess maybe when you hit the first thousand, do you think, like, things might have gone awry, but then you're like, well, no, I'm committed now. On to the next thousand. Ellison died on April 16th, 1994, the day after tax day. Got him one last time to pay his taxes. Bastards. Yeah. Died of pancreatic cancer. Oof. And he was survived by the old Fanny. I always thought he was gay. Really? Yeah. Oh. Huh. I thought Langston Hughes was gay. Well, there was stuff I read that maybe they were gay together. Oh. It seemed rather unsubstantiated. Well, you couldn't. You didn't look into it any further? He lived with a sculptor named Richmond Barth, who was gay. So he had gay pals. He had a lot of gay pals. And no kids. Wouldn't it shock me, then. Like, yeah, apparently he's a womanizer, so right, he might have see. been a bisexual. We don't know for a fact Ralph Ellison was gay, bisexual, or straight. However... Feel free to tell us what you think, and then there's a poll. <laughs> um, 25% think Ralph Ellison was gay. Great. <laughs> this uh, poll can be found on VIP FAQ. 
Great. Okay. Oh, let's see. Wait, no. I need to know the rest of the poll, though. Oh, my God. So 25% think he was gay. Yeah. 0% think he was bi. That is bisexual erasure. <laughs> so 75% think he was straight. Bisexual erasure. Did you know he was a Pisces? This site's great. Are there any books, DVDs, or other memorabilia of Ralph Ellison? <laughs> is there a Ralph Ellison action figure? What the fuck? Hold on. Megan. RJ. I think we need to stop everything and get a more conclusive answer to this question. Are there any photos of Ralph Ellison shirtless? The fuck do you have on your computer? Now the answer is there might be. There might be. Who would say? Unfortunately, we currently cannot access them for our system. They're working hard to fill that gap, though. <laughs> Check that back in tomorrow. Shirtless Ralph Ellison gap. What the fuck have you stumbled into? <laughs> Was Ralph Ellison hot or not? All right, is this like supposed to be for celebrities, but you just plugged in a, a famous author instead and it's just doing its best? Zero percent of voters think Ralph Ellison was hot. Well, they can't find any shirtless pictures. 75% though think he was straight. Zero <laughs> percent by though. Oh, Jesus. That's a good website. All right, so The Invisible Man. There's a lot going on in it. It was written, like RJ said, uh, largely as an encapsulation of Ellison's feelings of, of betrayal uh, at the hands of the Communist Party as he saw it. And specifically, he didn't want to write like a quote-unquote race novel. Like he wanted it to be saying something more and bigger and it, basically, if you refer to it as a race novel, even though race does play a large part in it, it's it's just sort of reductive and, and boring, and that wasn't what he was going for. It caught a lot of controversy at the time. Like, it was very, it's always been well-received. It wasn't like one of those books that uh, people didn't like or ignored at the time and then became a big deal later. Like, it was very quickly people were like, holy shit, like, this is a thing, because it was very kind of different and revolutionary in a lot of ways, and I'm going to talk about that. But much like our friend Zora Zedog Neil Hurston, a lot of people in the African-American community didn't like it because it was that thing of like, no, this isn't how we want to talk about like our community in books. This isn't, you know, the image that we want to be sharing necessarily or, or something, you know, kind of along those lines. And Ralph Ellison was just like, I do what I want. And he did. But yes, yeah, so The Invisible Man is a coming-of-age sort of story, a building his Roman, as we've mentioned. It's his disillusionment with communism. It's exploring identity and rejecting ideology. And it mixes, like, sort of a, a gritty realism with, like, a weird, trippy, Kafkaesque surrealism. Because it's just, it's absurd, as you're going to see. It's, it's situations distorted to the point where they're just, like, insane with heavy use of capital S symbolism. And you're you're gonna get that a lot. So, when I said before that it was kind of revolutionary in a lot of ways, uh, it was not just the subject matter, but also how he wrote it. And it's kind of a, a proto or early example of postmodernism. Now, I'm gonna wait until after we talk about the book to explain what the hell that means, because it'll make way more sense then, so just don't worry about that for now. So... The book, as it is semi-lucidly told. So right off the bat, in the prologue, our narrator informs us that he is, in fact, invisible. And not in the fun way, but because people refuse to really see him, you know, man? It's the 1950s, we're getting into that beat generation. These labels just keep us from seeing each other, right? Anyways, he spends his time living in a basement, stealing electricity to power the 1,369 light bulbs he always has switched on. Like you do smoking pot, and listening to Louis Armstrong. After a bit of vivid hallucinations brought on by too much pot, he decides that, yes, now he is ready to tell us the story of how he became invisible. Does it involve a cloak? No. That'd be, uh, I mean, that'd be, that'd be great, but, you know, no. How about a potion? <laughs> I drank this potion, and now racism. Yeah, now I'm black. Oh, boy. No, that's not what happens. He's, he's black from the beginning. What's interesting here is that while these are the events of the past being told to us by our nameless basement-dwelling narrator, it's told in the present tense, which can mean that he remembers these events so strongly that it's like they're still happening, or that he's just really stoned. Either way, 
Twenty-some-odd years ago, he was a young, naive, presumably at least somewhat visible man. His grandfather, who had been a slave before the Civil War, urges the narrator to try to game the system and use it against white people as best as he can. So he works hard to become a super smart, obedient, and humble model student with the plan of using these traits to infiltrate white society. He gives a high school graduation speech about progress and black humility, and it's such a big hit he gets invited to recite it at a gathering of the town's white leaders. Except no, that's not what it is. What it is, is some weird boozy party with, like, strippers and whatnot, and our narrator shows up and sees a bunch of other boys from his school, and the old white dudes force them to fight each other for money and their entertainment. Yeah. So after this terrible surprise punch party, he gets five bucks. They make him recite the speech anyway, even as he's spitting blood out of his mouth, and decide in the end to give him a scholarship to a Negro college. So yeah. All the stuff in the book is basically this. Concepts exaggerated to their logical conclusion. A bunch of African-American boys fighting each other for a chance at a better life to the amusement of white people, taken literally as a horrible child battle royale because that's satire for you. It's only gonna get fucking weirder and more capital S symbolic from here. So, you know, buckle the fuck up. The narrator reminisces about his college campus and how picturesque it was, and that every year the millionaires who funded the school would visit and hang out and feel good about themselves and write a bunch of checks and then leave. The narrator is tasked with driving one of these millionaires, named Mr. Norton, around the campus. Mr. Norton is weird and patronizing and kind of icky. He talks about how it's just so great to give money to the school and spread the light of knowledge to these poor black people that just wouldn't know their ass from a hole in the ground without him and his loads of money. There's a lot of that whole, like, I'm such a great dude mixed in with the random asides about... How beautiful and pure his now-dead daughter used to be, because that's a great topic of conversation. Throughout all this, our narrator's just kind of driving along, and he ends up on a street just off campus that's lined with poor sharecropper cabins, and Norton's like, Ooh, what are these poor people houses? And the narrator's like, Oh, man, I wasn't supposed to take you around here. This is where that gross and terrible incest thing happened, and everyone in town hates this gross and terrible incest man, and so, of course, Mr. Norton's like, Take me to this gross incest man. I want to meet him. And he does. And the gross incest man tells his gross incest story. Um, his name's John Trueblood about how he accidentally impregnated his daughter in his sleep. And, like, fuck. Like, no. Like, I don't want it. Like, having to read this was bad enough. Like, yeah, there's weird symbolism shit going on, and Mr. Norton is, like, horrified, but he's into it as he's listening to the story. Like, there's some weird voyeuristic shit going on, because when True Blood finishes his weird, gross incest story, Mr. Norton pays him $100, and apparently, uh, True Blood says this happens a lot, because white people are almost, like, rewarding him for being a living embodiment of, like, the most a negative exaggeration of uh, negative black stereotypes, and also you get the sense that Mr. Norton was a creepy motherfucker to his own daughter, and this is like some kind of fantasy, and just, ugh. God, Allison, thanks a bunch for making me read this. Super great of you. Yeah, no, I'm sorry, guy. I'm not mature enough to read the book and get the symbolism because I'm too busy being grossed the fuck out by the subject matter. Oopsie incest. <laughs> ah, it, I was asleep and oh, oh, this incest happened. Who could have predicted this? It might be a side effect for Cymbalta. <laughs> yeah. What's great is Cymbalta actually even sounds like symbolism. I don't even know <laughs> if you meant to make that joke. May cause internal bleeding, hemorrhaging, and accidentally impregnating your daughter. After that mess, Norton's like, hoo-wee, I need a drink. So the narrator takes him to the nearest bar, which was a really dumb fucking idea because the nearest bar is a bar slash insane asylum because of course it is. I thought you were going to say yeah. incest farm. He <laughs> took him to the incest bar. <laughs> the one bar in town. <laughs> oh, Jesus, really bad. Uh, a bar fight breaks out because of course it does because it's during crazy hour, which is their version of happy hour. Ralph, Ellison, why? Uh, and it's just total pandemonium. And the narrator's like, why Why did I even do this? This was a bad idea. It's like, yeah, no kidding, buddy. This will become a frequent refrain of our, our young narrator, just being thoroughly shocked at his obviously bad ideas and situations. So he finally dumps Mr. Norton back at the school and the college president, Dr. Bledsoe, is like, what the fuck did you do? He's furious that the narrator didn't show Mr. Norton just what he was, like, meant to see. Namely, 
nice and sanitized images of black collegiate living. He tells the narrator that black progress doesn't actually mean shit to him if it threatens his cushy job that he's worked so hard to get, and so to it, he expels our narrator. But he tells him he still likes the cut of his jib and says, spend the summer in New York, make some money, and maybe you can buy your way back in next year. And even gives the narrator a bunch of letters of recommendation to give out to contacts of his in New York. Sealed letters, of course, which the narrator is absolutely not supposed to look at. And yeah, our invisible dude might also have an invisible brain because he's just like, neat, that's nice of him. I trust this man. The narrator leaves for New York and is very sad because student has pretty much been his identity his whole life from his striving to be a smarty pants. So if he's not a student, who is he? Still a student. We're all students every day. The students of life. The greatest of all teachers. Yeah, Ralph Ellison glanced at the word subtle, shook his head definitively, and flipped back to the word symbolism. The narrator's pretty overwhelmed by New York, but he's determined to make a go of it. He takes Dr. Bledsoe's letters of wreck and heads out to make some contacts. I'm told if you can make it there, stuff happens. Stuff. You make it? If you can make it there, you can make it there. <laughs> if you make it there, you got a pretty good chance of making it in Oklahoma City. One would hope. Anywhere. <laughs> Maybe even anywhere. I think that was John Cleese. <laughs> no, Abraham Lincoln. Abraham that, Lincoln said that. Abraham Lincoln. You make it in New York City, pasta fazool. <laughs> You've been hit on the head recently. <laughs> now back to incest. No. No, that's, okay, that's, A, that's the worst rejoinder ever, and B, No. So he takes the letters of wreck, goes out, try to make some contacts, doesn't go super well. As soon as they read the letters, each potential contact secretary is just like, uh, no, so-and-so's busy, come back never. Eventually, one of them takes pity on the narrator and shows him the letter, which says, hey, maybe give this kid some hope that he'll be able to go back to school, but also no, he's bad and that's never going to happen. Hugs and kisses, Dr. Bledsoe. Who could have seen that coming? Not our narrator. It also feels weirdly unnecessary, too. Like, he could have just expelled him. But he gives him this weird false hope instead. I, I don't, like, I don't have a, an actual answer for that. I'm sure it's symbolic of something or a, other. Of Batman. What? You gotta give him hope. Oh, boy. You gotta give him hope. Well, the narrator kind of feels like he has no hope now because he's humiliated and realizes that he'll have to go home and admit to his parents that he got kicked out of school. Oopsie expelled. Oopsie doopsie expulsion. Although, you know, oopsie doopsie expulsion is a little better than oopsie doopsie pedophilic incest. Yeah, you know, in the grand scheme of things, Yeah, it's I'd not so bad. So. I hope yeah. he used that one on his parents. Well, he doesn't have to because the secretary is sympathetic and recommends that the narrator just stay in New York and get a job and not tell his parents anything. That's good. That way... He has a less chance of himself falling victim to oopsie-doopsie incest. If he's not near his parents, he's pretty safe. This is horrible and I hate it. He tells the narrator to check out a place called Liberty Paints to try for a job. Okay, so Liberty Paints is an absolutely insane and deeply metaphorical place. It's an intensely patriotic paint shop, famous for a paint called Optic White that applies black but dries to white. But the narrator can't get the mixture right, and it keeps coming out in shades of gray. Hmm. Christian? Yes, the paint is a millionaire and wants to get into a BDSM relationship with our narrator. You lots guessed of, it. No, that's the color they call it. They call it Christian gray. Well, no, it's... Do they call it Anastasia Steel? I hate that we keep talking about this fucking book. Wait, it's a book? <laughs> So they send him down to the basement to assist a crazy old man named Lucius Brockway who thinks that everyone is trying to steal his job. The narrator accidentally interrupts a union meeting while trying to get his lunch and when he tells Brockway about it, he goes batshit and he takes his dentures out and he bites the narrator with them who's like, what the fuck? And attacks him back with an iron bar. Except then uh, the boiler starts to shriek and, like, smoke, and, and Brockway's just like, this is your problem now, and he runs away, and the narrator's caught in the blast as it explodes. The end. No, no, it's not the end yet. What follows is a hallucinatory section where the narrator is in a hospital of some kind, but thinks he's being experimented on and, and might be being experimented on? It's hard to tell. And he completely disassociates and doesn't even know who he is anymore, until he finally comes back to his senses and realizes he's in the factory infirmary. 
They release him into the world, despite the fact that he's still obviously fucked up, and he almost collapses on the subway. Lucky for him, he's rescued by a woman named Mary Rambo, who offers to help him to her house so he can rest there, which, yes, sounds extremely fishy, but no. Mary is actually just a really nice person, and after he's had time to get himself together, tells him that she has a room to rent if he wants it, and it beats living at the Y, so he takes her up on it while he unsuccessfully searches for a new job. Is she the mother of Rambo Rambo? Um, I mean, we could only hope. John Rambo. Yeah, yeah, Rambo Rambo. (laughs) Mario Mario, Luigi Mario, Rambo Rambo. Yeah. Walking down the street in winter, he sees an elderly black couple getting evicted from their home as a crowd looks on. The old woman wants to go back into the house to pray, but their white landlord won't let them, and the crowd becomes aggressive, prompting a sudden speech that just sort of tears its way out of our narrator about how they should be law-abiding and help the couple, but not get all wild and riot. This sort of works. The crowd doesn't riot, per se, but they rush the landlord and get the elderly couple's belongings back in their house, and the narrator helps, and he sees, like, the crowd is made up of both white and black people, and he feels pretty good until the cops come and try to arrest him for inciting a riot. He runs for it and is caught not by cops, but by some white dude named Brother Jack. Okay. Who keeps referring to our narrator as Brother. Okay. And wants him to take a job with this guy's Brotherhood and speak at political rallies to help better the world. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that seems on the level. Well, either way. Our narrator doesn't have a job, and even though Mary's too nice to ask for the rent he's way behind on, he doesn't want to take advantage of her, so he takes Brother Jack up on his offer. He gets taken to the Brotherhood's headquarters, and everyone there gets drunk, and Brother Jack tells him they're a multiracial coalition trying to change the world and help the oppressed, and that, since the narrator is so good at speechifying, they'll pay him 60 bucks a week, which is, in this context, a lot of money, to do speeches for them. They also give him enough money to square his rent with Mary, but explain that he'll have to come live with them now, for safety reasons. Because the Brotherhood has many enemies. In fact, he probably shouldn't be in contact with anyone outside the Brotherhood. Definitely not his family. None of this raises any red flags with the invisible dipstick, and he has a great time drinking and dancing and presumably getting his thetan levels tested with the Scientologer, I mean, Brotherhood. He moves out of Mary's place and into a fancy apartment he has all to himself, conveniently filled with, like, pamphlets and books all about the Brotherhood. He's got a new place, a new suit, a new job, and it's all happening really fast. He goes to his first rally and gets nervous, but delivers a powerful speech in a distinctly Southern style. The crowd eats it up, but the other brothers say, too much emotion, not enough debate club polish. They will learn how to better do a speech from a guy named Brother Hambro. Cut to four months later. Our narrator has completed his training and is making a name for himself in the Brotherhood and has even been elected chief spokesman of the Harlem District. This means that he's running campaigns against evictions, giving public speeches, calling officials, all kinds of big-time stuff. He almost gets knifed at one speech, though, by a guy named Roz the Exhorter. What is an exhorter, you might ask? Well, someone who exhorts. Obviously. An extorter? No, not extorter, exhorter. Exhorter. An ex-hoarder? Ex-hoarder. Someone who used to hoard, but no longer does. No, 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 no. E-E-X-H-O-R-T-E-R. To exhort. To stimulate. <laughs> well, to to strongly encourage. <laughs> usually usually someone to do something. Yeah, yeah, dictionary tells me. Stimulate. It, to extort doesn't mean to tickle the balls. So, Roz, the strong encourager is a black nationalist who sees any kind of cooperation with white people as an act of betrayal and submission, and he criticizes the narrator for working with the Brotherhood, and by criticizes, I mean attempts to knife him. But the narrator and another guy named Brother Clifton fight back and knock him out. The narrator does feel kind of weird, though, about being built into this whole new man by the Brotherhood that conforms to their standards and isn't really him. It's less an identity and more of a fancy suit. Like the suit they make him wear to give speeches in. Are you getting it? Are you getting it yet? Huh? Anyway, our narrator then receives an anonymous letter telling him that he's getting too big for his britches and that it's still a white man's world. And if he wants to live in it, he can't be doing so much so soon. It freaks him out a little, but then he's visited by another Brotherhood member, Brother Westrom, who's an annoying suck-up. While he's there, our narrator gets a phone call from a magazine wanting to do an interview with him. Our narrator's like, yeah, I don't know, but Westrom, eavesdropping, pressures him to do it. And so he does. 
Uh, except that two weeks later, he's getting chewed out in a meeting for using the Brotherhood as self-promotion, with Brother Westrom citing the magazine article as proof. Our narrator, despite having this happen to him several times now, is still just shocked by Brother Westrom's betrayal. But anyway, he manages to defend himself well enough that they don't kick him out. But Brother Jack says he can either stay in Harlem and not do public work anymore, or go downtown and help with women's issues. The narrator's bummed out, but he's like, I'm super good at speeches and stuff, so you know what? I'm gonna give such good lady speeches, and then they'll see. And he does. And the ladies love it. Do you give lady speeches with your mouth? I, yeah, I guess. Alright. What would you give lady speeches with? My vagina. You give monologues with those, RJ. So, yes, the ladies love his lady speeches. In fact, one lady loves it so much, she comes up to him afterwards saying that she wants to learn more about the Brotherhood's ideology. And by Brotherhood, I mean our narrator. And by ideology, I mean our narrator's wiener. They do a sex together, but then, uh-oh, her husband comes home. Oopsie doopsie, adultery. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. Her husband doesn't seem to be very bothered. Like, our narrator wakes up after having sex and he sees the husband there, but he's just looking at him. Oh, he's a cock. He's into it. <laughs> I want you to know that in my notes, I put in parentheses, he's gonna make a cuck joke here. Because <laughs> I knew he Either way, our narrator scrambles on out and is super nervous about the Brotherhood finding out about it. But there's no time to worry about that now, as young Brother Clifton, who you may recall I mentioned earlier, who the narrator's pretty good friends with, has gone missing. The narrator returns to Harlem to help look for Brother Clifton and goes to the Brotherhood's Harlem headquarters only to find it completely empty, with most of the furnishings gone as well. Because our narrator is thick as a fucking brick, he thinks, oh, maybe they just stepped out and waits around for someone to come by until like three in the morning. He tries to make calls to the other offices, but no one seems to care about Brother Clifton's disappearance. The Brotherhood has shifted its focus to enacting change on a national level and really doesn't give a shit about Harlem or its inhabitants anymore. Much like communism after World War II. Oh. Yeah, it is. Ellison is a very vivid and just amazing writer, but he's not a subtle one. Why be subtle? If you're going to write one novel... Go hard. Go hard, baby. Woo! Woo! Frustrated, the narrator knows there's only one thing that can lift his low spirits. Show shopping! Oh. My. God. Shiz. Look at these shoes. 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 And it's on the way to pick out a new pair of Jimmy Choo's that the narrator stumbles upon. Hold on, they had Jimmy Choo's back then? Sure. Yeah, why not? Oh, for, yeah. for the purposes of the joke, yes. Clifton! Clifton, yes. Uh, working as a street vendor, selling racist paper dolls. What? He refers to them as Sambo dolls, and I had to Google that, and yeah, they're really bad like 1930s racist cartoon representation sort of situation they ain't great so what the hell is brother clifton like a tireless advocate for progress and racial equality you know working for the brotherhood doing hawking racism dolls on a street corner well we'll never know because the narrator doesn't get the chance to ask before police officers just sort of converge on clifton for some reason they chase him down the street and uh, they try to, like, subdue him, and Clifton manages to punch a few of them out, and then they shoot him dead. It all happens pretty fast. Our narrator is almost sort of numb to the whole situation because it's just like, what the fuck just happened? But once he has time to process it, he decides to organize a funeral for Clifton to celebrate his achievements and not mention the whole racist doll selling thing. The younger members of the Brotherhood are just stunned and saddened by Clifton's death, and a whole bunch of them show up to the funeral along with crowds of Harlem community members. You know who's not there? Clifton? I mean, his, his body is. Uh, Jesus? Well, that depends entirely on your own personal perspective. <laughs> now, Brother Jack is not there. Mm. This is because he and the other upper high-ranking Brotherhood members were pissed as hell about it. They tell the narrator there was no reason for him to take the initiative to do the funeral, and that they pay him to talk about what they want and not to think for himself. Like, they basically just stop short of saying the literal words, You're our puppet, now dance puppet boy. Because symbolism. They didn't want to be associated with Clifton because of the racist doll thing, but the narrator argues that an unarmed black man getting gunned down by the police matters more. Hmm. 
yeah, I'm not gonna touch that one. And he tells them that Harlem feels left behind by the Brotherhood, and that Clifton probably left the Brotherhood because he felt left behind too. Brother Jack doesn't like these accusations, and they have a fist fight, and Brother Jack's glass eye pops out. Yeah. Brother Jack apparently has a glass eye. And the narrator's all like, ugh. And the reader's like, ah, yes. Brother Jack having only one eye is symbolic of how flawed his vision of the Brotherhood's plans are. No, they're not. No, the reader's like, ah, what the hell? Why are there glass eyes and shit rolling all over the place? Shit happens. I kind of like that as literary analysis. Why is this happening? Shit happens. Gotta fill out those 500 pages. Imagine what's in a 2,000 page almost book. <laughs> Got a lot of plot in there. Uh, anyway, even after that whole mess, the narrator stays with the Brotherhood because he reasons what the hell else is he going to do? He's, you know, he's got to try to grab meaning from something. And also now, because without the Brotherhood, what is his identity? Because we're, we're back to that. He goes to meet with Brother Hambro, the guy who trained him to give good speeches, but on the way is attacked by Roz, the aggressive urger, and some of his lackeys. The narrator runs away and buys a hat and sunglasses to disguise himself, except this apparently makes him look just like some guy named Reinhardt, who people keep mistaking him for over and over again. Reinhardt is, based on all the people who accost our narrator, a bookie, a pimp, uh, several women's lovers, and also a reverend? Yeah, that happens. He finally makes it to Hambros, who tells him that the Brotherhood is going to ally itself with bigger political groups, and that, as they do, there will be some inevitable sacrifices. And by sacrifices, he means the Brotherhood is going to abandon the black community. At least, definitely on the local level, because... reasons. Hamper's very abstract about this. He doesn't explain things in, like, concrete human terms, and the narrator just gets frustrated and angry again. Except, this time, instead of going all Carrie Bradshaw on some shoe store, he pretends to be a good little puppet boy until the Brotherhood likes him again, and then targets one of the Brothers' wives to seduce and get information from. This backfires spectacularly. Oh my gosh. It's just, it's just the worst plan ever. So not only does the lady he seduces, an older woman named Sybil, know absolutely nothing useful about her husband's political activities, not only did he make both the drinks way too strong so they're both hammered, white girl wasted Sybil, who is white, reveals that she has a sex fantasy about being raped by a big black man. Can we, can we kink-shame Sybil? I suppose. All right. I'm if we have to. I'm a kink-shame Sybil. So, yeah, our narrator only saw Sybil as a tool to use against the Brotherhood, and Sybil only sees the narrator as a means to act out her weird racist fantasy. No one wins! Instead, they both pass the fuck out, and that's the end of that. The next day, our narrator takes the bus to Harlem, and stay with me now, because a lot's going to happen really quick. Harlem is in full-on riot mode. People are fighting and looting and just generally engaging in the usual angry mob activities. The narrator gets swept up in the action, becomes an accessory to arson, helps bandage an injured man who's bleeding out, and watches as cops gun people down. He tries to run away and is attacked by Roz, who's been upgraded from Roz the Exhorter to Roz the Destroyer. Yes, that's in the context of the book. And he is now astride a horse and armed with a spear and a shield. What the fuck has Ross been up to? Uh, while our narrator was trying and failing to seduce a, a woman with weird racist sex fantasies, Roz was apparently going out and getting fucking a horse and a spear and just going, going to town fucking old Roman style on people. What the fuck? I feel like that would have, you know, made for a more compelling subject matter, but, you know, whatever. Ross leads the mob and calls for them to attack and lynch the narrator, since he's a member of the Brotherhood and therefore a betrayer. The narrator responds by grabbing Roz's spear and stabbing it through his fucking face. Yeah, like, through one cheek and out the other. Brutal. That's a kebab. Yes, he kebabs Ross. He's Ross the kebab now. So the narrator keeps running until he falls down an open manhole and lands in a pile of coal. Someone puts the lid back on the manhole and he's trapped in darkness. He grabs some matches and burns whatever paper he has on him for light and realizes, when going to like burn the anonymous letter, telling him to remember that Whitey is always in charge because he's still carrying this around with him for some reason? He looks at it and recognizes that the handwriting is Brother Jack's. He can tell this now, I guess. Though, can he really be surprised at this point? Like, wow, oh no, I can't believe it. Brother Jack was such a good dude. Hey. So the narrator's like, well, 
everything sucks, I'm just gonna live in a hole forever. And he does. Not that hole specifically, but his little basement, where he now lives as the novel catches up to the present. He recalls recently seeing old Mr. Norton at a subway stop, and he asks the narrator for directions, and the narrator's like, don't you remember me? And Mr. Norton's like, bruh, I don't know who you are, like, I just want directions. Mr. Norton changed the course of our narrator's entire life. He doesn't even recognize him. Because he's invisible. Our narrator decides that telling this whole story has helped him to get ready to leave his hole and go back into the world. He says he hopes it will make people see past his invisibility and give a voice to other invisible people, ending on these famous lines. Being invisible and without substance, a disembodied voice, as it were, what else could I do? What else but try to tell you what was really happening when your eyes were looking through? And it is this which frightens me. Who knows but that, on the lower frequencies, I speak for you. The end. And that's Visible Man. So, how about that postmodernism? Pomo. Pomo to the max. We haven't tried to explain postmodernism on here yet, I don't think. Have we? I don't know why I'm asking you. You don't remember anything we do. So I'm going to do my best here, but it's going to be kind of a quick and dirty explanation because postmodernism is a whole fucking thing. And this book is sort of an early example with just like postmodern elements. So we don't need a whole explanation. And also I've taken several classes on postmodernist literature and I still struggle to accurately explain just what the hell it is. All right. Modernism, which came first, was like World War One, disillusionment, everything is terrible, and the way people have done art before um, are stupid, and tradition is stupid, and look what tradition made, it's bullshit, it's that lost generation, your Hemingways, your Fitzgeralds, your Virginia Woolfs, and uh, they were like, you know, we're gonna redefine literature, and by redefine, I mean mostly just be way more cynical about it. So, post-World War Two, roughly, kind of not so much until the 60s, but whatever, we got postmodernism, which looked at modernism and said, okay, but what if when we said we were redefining literature, we actually did that and also deconstructed it and turned it inside out and then also put it in our pants? So who do you think exactly did the putting in the pants? Was it Foucault? Was it Derrida? Was it Baudrillard? Derrida. Derrida absolutely put it in his pants. Yeah? Yes. Derrida does that whole thing about how he, like, got naked in front of his cat all the time and wondered if his cat was into it, so. Why can a cat not be attracted to the human body? The human body is a beautiful thing. Have you never gazed upon another animal and went, ooh, look at that. Oopsie doopsie uh, bestiality. (laughs) So postmodernism is weird. That it's so difficult to define and classify is in itself postmodern. Yeah, I know. Postmodernism wants you to get frustrated trying to figure it out so it can tweak you on the nose and go, there was never anything to figure out in the first place. Joke's on you, asshole. Art means whatever the fuck you want it to mean. Uh, just as an example of this, so my first postmodern literature professor drew a question mark on the whiteboard and then put parentheses around it and then went, this is the definition of postmodernism. And we all looked on in horror, realizing that taking this class had been a terrible mistake. Who and is he, this? he looked gleeful about it. Who's this? This Professor Hess. Oh, that guy. Yeah. So, how is the invisible man postmodern? Well, the events are bizarre and exaggerated, like I said, to the point where it's just huge and, and absurd. And the narration is heavily stylized and almost like reading a hallucination. The idea of rejecting any kind of belief or ideology because, like, why bother? Nothing actually means anything anyway. And that identity can also mean, in a way, whatever you want it to, are all sort of postmodern things. And as the narrator tries on and tosses off several different identities, and yeah, it doesn't matter because he's still stuck with black man as an identity that renders him invisible. That's, uh, That's the best I can do. With that, that sort of situation on postmodernism. We're going to get to that uh, at a later date when we finally do an episode on Thomas Pynchon and then I shoot myself. There are, interestingly enough, despite this book's like lauded status, it won like the, it's won like the National Book Award and like it's like I said, it's on the shelf with the other great American novels. There's no adaptations of it. There's uh, apparently been some, like, rumors that Hulu wants to, like, turn it into a TV series within the next year or so. Just so you know, there uh, was a play adaptation of Invisible Man. So, 
I was not able Megan to, was has not dropped able, the ball once again. It's from that liberal that. rag, the New York Times, 2013. Huh. It must not have had a very much of a run because I couldn't find anything about it. Are you not on that tier of the internet? You can't afford it? Mm. Yeah, that's what happens. I have the Cadillac version of the internet. Okay. Here's the thing about the play, Meg. They had to get permission from his estate. Okay. And part of the thing they had agreed to was every word in the play belonged to Ellison. They were not allowed to change a single word. That's kind of diff- makes for a difficult translation. It's a three-hour play done in three acts. Every act from the whole. Oh, wow. So it's just one dude sitting there talking, huh? Like, I don't other, know other, about other, other, that. Are there other people in the show? Unclear. I see one actor in different clothing. I see. Notes from the whole. There's jazz music. Well, that was his whole thing, was he wanted to write it as, as jazz. And it played in an 800-seat theater. All right. But Megan couldn't find that online by mm-hmm. herself. Nope. Try harder next time. Yeah, well, I can admit my mistakes. Hey, RJ. What's up? So, I know that you did not have to read Visible Man as part of your literary education. Correct. But uh, after this go-around, good, bad, symbolic. I've always been a fan of Derrida. Postmodernism, A+. Plus. I mean, it's it's not really a po- It's too early to be a postmodern novel. I said it has postmodern elements to it. The idea of... of mutable identity and and being written in a a style that challenges how we typically read novels i find the book to be very true and i'm not one for subtlety this is true this book checks a lot of boxes off two two (laughs) megan invisible man yeah shirtless photos we just don't know megan yeah. Invisible Man. Yeah. Good. Bad. See-through. Uh, so yeah, when I read this book for my American Narratives class, I really didn't like it, and I still am not a big fan of it. I, you know, I can look at it and see, like, yes, this is an objectively well-written book. This was revolutionary for the time. This is in, in big letters and quotes, IMPORTANT BOOK. I really don't like it. I don't have patience for books that are, you know, just, like, very heavily symbolic. I don't gain an enjoyment out of reading it because it's just kind of like, okay, yes, I get it. I get what you're, yes, that is that, yes, cool, thumbs up, and you just get frustrated. And also, I get frustrated with the narrator because he's dummy who doesn't realize every time that the same things keep happening to him where people fuck him over. And it just, he's so shocked every single time. And he does, he does dumb things, expecting things to turn out differently. I don't know. I I have a hard time with this book. I don't want to discourage people from reading it necessarily because it is interesting in its difference. But I just, I just, I can't get into it where it's like, this is symbolic for this. Cool, thanks. Thanks for making me read the incest story so that you can do the symbolism. That's, uh, that's pretty much where I end up on that. So I'll say it's a f- more of a failing on my part than on Ralph Ellison's. And that'll about do it for us on this episode of Oh No, the Class. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. The Not, holidays. Yeah, or yeah, you know, it's beginning. Well, because the song goes, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Might have to be PC. It's beginning to look a lot like non-denominational wintertime holidays. Yeah. Yeah. So our next episode will be the closest one to Christmas. So I guess we're going to do a holiday special of some kind. We'll see how that plays out. In the meantime, if you like us, you can go on iTunes and leave us ratings and reviews and subscribe. You can join our Facebook group. You can follow us at Pod on Twitter. You can listen to us anywhere that you get your podcasts. Just, you know, throw your net out into the ocean at the at the podcast reef and reel it in. And there we are. But we're also on stuff like, you know, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, Pocket Cast, Overcast, all that fun stuff. And, of course, always at onolitclass.com. Today's podcast pals require no introduction, but I'm going to give them one anyway. Because, I don't know, shut up. You're not the boss of me. Ain't nobody the boss of me. And they are... 
Paul and Donna of Varmints! Exclamation point. The show that's all about animals. Together they blend crazy animal facts with lighthearted humor. That's actually safe for everyone in your family to listen to. Unlike us terrible, filthy people here. I hear a varmint right now. It's my cat. He is sad that I'm not paying attention to him. But you should pay attention to Paul and Donna at Varmints because they're great and amazing. Hey, my name's Paul and I'm not an animal expert. I'm Donna and I'm not an animal expert either. And together we do a podcast about animals called Varmints. Every week we pick an animal, do a bunch of research on it, and bring you some interesting facts about that animal. But we don't stop there. We talk about that animal in movies, TV, and other pop culture. And we talk about whether or not that animal would make a tasty dish, and how intelligent we think it is on the scale of 1 to 10. It's exactly like one of those fancy PBS nature documentaries. Except with more poo jokes! New episodes go live every Thursday wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Or you can visit us at BlazingCaribouStudios.com. <laughs> Varmints! Varmints! <laughs> Thank you, as always, to Best Day for our theme song. Our next episode will be out December 21st. So enjoy that and whatever sort of holiday nonsense we will inevitably get up to. In the meantime, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. Footloose. Footloose. Everybody got a footloose. Everybody got a footloose. Hey, you know who's in footloose? No. The invisible man. No, he's. Oh, shit, he is. <laughs> Damn it. So I, I, just, I just got Kevin Bacon. <laughs>